This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. When we think about time and productivity, we usually think about doing. But meditation company MNDFL is trying to shift the focus to being. In the fifth episode of the new season of Outside the Box podcast, we hear from the company's CEO and co-founder, Ellie Burroughs, about why she made this her business and how taking time to unplug can make our lives more meaningful. Listen today to learn more from Ellie firsthand. Outside the Box is available now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and everywhere you like to listen. Millions of people face legal problems every year. Take control of your rights with Legal Shield for help on a variety of legal issues such as preparing a will or fighting a speeding ticket. As a Legal Shield member, you'll pay an affordable monthly rate for access to an entire law firm instead of hefty hourly fees. Get the legal protection you deserve. Visit LegalShield.com and put a law firm in the palm of your hand today with Legal Shield. And now, on with the show. I wonder if you could help me. I was trying to find the house that Elvis Presley lived in. Ain't had no house over here. You remember the great Chuck D line? Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant to me. Straight up racist, that sucker was simple and plain. Mother him and John Wayne. mixed up together. He was the voice of the country at its best and at its worst. America is great when America does great things. Well, America's been doing a lot of bad things. I think that the American dream was always someone's fantasy and someone else's drunken nightmare. Oh, make us sad, make us sad. That's where we are in America. Where's the second act? Where's just all gone to hell? What is wrong with America? The world just Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was a clip from The King, a new documentary by Emmy and Peabody Award-winning filmmaker Eugene Jarecki, who crisscrossed the U.S. in Elvis Presley's 1963 Rolls-Royce Phantom IV, talking to everyday folks, Elvis's friends, and celebrities from music, movies, and politics about the king of rock and roll and how his life serves as a metaphor for the best and perhaps worst of the American dream. And today he comes on the podcast to trace Elvis's journey from his birth in a Mississippi backwater that would be a ghost town today if it weren't for Elvis tourism, to the musical melting pot of Memphis, where some say Presley culturally appropriated black music, and ultimately to Las Vegas and the sweaty jumpsuit Elvis who became more of a brand than a man. He says Elvis joined the military as James Dean and came back as John Wayne and discusses his longtime manager, Colonel Tom Parker, and the corrupting power of celebrity. Eugene reveals how he acquired Elvis's Rolls Royce, how it became a beacon for people on both sides of the political divide, and served as a conversation starter for a larger discussion about the promise of America, the sins of the past, and where our country is headed today plus the perils of driving and directing and road tripping in a 55-year-old Rolls. Coming up with documentary filmmaker Eugene Jarecki in just a moment.
Eugene Jarecki is an Emmy, Sundance, and Peabody Award-winning director of dramatic and documentary subjects. And in his latest film, he takes audiences for a cross-country road trip in Elvis Presley's 1963 Rolls-Royce to talk with well-known figures and everyday Americans about Elvis's life and how it might serve as a cautionary tale about the American dream and the excess of the age we're living in today. The film is titled The King, and it opens in theaters Friday, June 22nd in New York and June 29th in L.A. Eugene, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I can't say that I'm a, a, an Elvis nut who like knows all the details of his life and the trivia and all that, but I always like the music, so I really enjoyed the film. Your thesis is that Elvis is uh, sort of a metaphor for America. Briefly walk us through that to start. Well, when you stop and think about it, I mean, what could possibly be more American than Elvis Presley? And what could more poetically represent the American dream, the idea of somebody coming out of nowhere, a poor kid from the Mississippi Delta who mm -hmm. ultimately rises so fast and rises so high that he becomes what? He becomes the king, right? So a country yeah. boy becomes a king. What could be more the American dream than that? Or... Is that really a bunch of mythology I just said? <laughs> you know, I mean, if that's a bunch of bullshit, then what it means is that we have to question the American dream itself, that uh, who was the American dream for? I mean, Elvis was a big white man. We know that there was an American dream for big white men. But was there a big white was there an American dream for anybody but big white men? And of course, that's where Elvis then becomes an ever more complicated part of what it means to be America. And I'm not just there to be critical of him. It has almost nothing to do with him. He's a symbol, and we invested a great deal in that symbol. But we're now at a time, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Time's Up, so many ways that we're rethinking all that we thought this country was about. And that's a beautiful thing that we're rethinking. And it's time to do that with Elvis, too. Is there some significance in the fact that you chose as the vehicle for this film Elvis's 1963 Rolls-Royce, which... I guess it's really, it's a symbol of his decline and the Elvis of excess. This is not the young, uncorrupted Elvis. Sure, it's not, a, it's not a Thunderbird or a Cadillac. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't take a nostalgia machine across the country and try to demonstrate that the American dream, like we all thought of it, is alive and well. And, you know, mom and pop Cleaver are still living <laughs> on Main Street and the white picket fence. Instead, I'm looking past the white picket fence at what's really going on in the soul of the country. And to do that from Elvis's Rolls Royce is to look out the windows of a car that represents the incredible cognitive dissonance that we live with as Americans mm -hmm. every day and that Elvis represents, that we are a democ de democracy that broke off from the King of England to avoid ever having kings and queens and all that oppression. And we find ourselves today, look at how many Americans watch the royal wedding. Look at how we put our celebrities <laughs> yeah. on absurd pedestals. Yeah. Look at how many of them we call king, prince, one thing or another. Mike Myers is in the film, and at one point he actually says something. I mean, he says many funny things, but one of the funniest things he says in the movie, he says, is he could never understand why this country, he's from Canada, why this country loves kings and queens so much if the whole point was that we broke off. He <laughs> says, you got the king of beers, you got Muffler King, Elvis, the king of, of, uh, the, king of the world. He, <laughs> then he turns to me and he says, and I never understood why Bruce Springsteen was called the boss. I mean, don't we hate the boss? <laughs> yeah, and you have a really wonderful cross-section of Americans, both famous and ordinary. Um, you have even that sentence, political. by the way, 
And I struggle with that sentence too. Yeah, I, as I was us, saying it, I noticed that. <laughs> are the rest of us ordinary? I mean, isn't it incredible right. that we live in a democratic republic of the people, by the people, mm-hmm. for the people? But when it comes to expressing things about our taste, and I do exactly what you just did, there's the special people right. and then all the ordinary people. <laughs> but yes, we have special people and ordinary people, famous and not in well, the Well, thank you for calling me out on that because I, I caught myself as the words were leaving my it's, mouth. <laughs> it's what we were just talking about. It's part yeah. of this. We don't even realize it's in the air we breathe. Yeah. And you have so many interesting people in this, including, among others, you know, James Carville, several people that have been guests of the show, uh, Van Jones. Also, uh, Ethan Hawke recently came on the show, maybe, I guess, a month ago, and was actually talking about this project. Right. Um, Ethan is a national treasure. And, you know, in the film, he makes an unbelievable contribution. Mm-hmm. But you also get to see, as Ethan's doing that, he has an enormous love of Elvis, independent from this film. And he has an enormous sense of the special ironies and tragedies and poignant nuances about the Elvis story. I mean, Elvis is just almost universal, whether you're from the North or the South, Heartland or the coastal cities, Trump or Hillary supporters, everyone loves Elvis. And everywhere that you go in this Rolls Royce, it just seems to draw people to it. For your purposes as a filmmaker, I think it makes for a wonderful conversation starter. It does. I mean, we had people, I was driving through New Mexico one day and, um, Actually, we were in a town called Las Vegas, not the, the Las Vegas, but uh, its own Las Vegas <laughs> Where is in this? New Mexico. In New Mexico. In New Mexico. And uh, a, a young guy um, of uh, sort of, a, I think he was sort of part Native and part Latino, mm-hmm. uh, ran out and, and almost jumped in front of the car. And he says to me <laughs> out of the blue, was this Elvis Presley's Rolls Royce? And I'm thinking- How did he know that? I'm just driving through this town- this car isn't even the same color that it was when Elvis bought it because Elvis <laughs> repainted it during the time he owned it. How on earth does this man know that? And I said to him, yes, it is. Pull over. So I said, well, who are you? And he said, well, I live here in Las Vegas with my wife. We're both we're both Native American and we love Elvis. We have Elvis's cookbook and my wife makes all the recipes of Elvis. And we went and got her and we drove them around in the car for an hour talking to them. And it was so beautiful to perceive the wide reach of what Elvis as a dream represents. Mm-hmm. They understand that Elvis is known to be part Native American. They understand that he has a link to that. You drive through Memphis and African-American people in Memphis, they don't dominantly have the view Elvis was a racist, Elvis stole our music, which are views that other people quite quite strongly suggest, and there's a lot of conversation to be had there on both sides. You meet a lot of people in Memphis who will tell you, African-American people who will tell you, yes, the music business stole black music, but I think Elvis was authentic and he made it his own and he did what he was doing. Now, I'm not here to defend entirely Elvis Presley's record on race. When I'm, we'll talk about that at length and it's quite complex and, and educational. But what is so fascinating is how many people across the American landscape and even the global landscape identify with something about him. Mm-hmm. He's like one of those plain white screens on which we project images of ourselves and what we hope to be the case. Sort of Elvis as a Rorschach blot for America. Um, And if you look at social media and the talking heads on television these days, it doesn't seem that either side of the political spectrum is capable of holding a productive conversation anymore. As you were crossing America and encountering people face to face in this Rolls Royce, 
Was it a little easier to have those kind of conversations? It was the opposite. Everyday people mm-hmm. across this country are decent, hardworking, passionate people who are bewildered by the insanity of our politics. And they're, of course, bewildered that the major networks and the, the, the news institutions in general, they're not at fault. But what they are portraying is the strident because it's mm-hmm. what grabs headlines and it's what makes people watch your channel. For sure. And so the lunatic fringe on any end of anything is coming to dominate American discussions in the media, but it's not dominating it in coffee shops and at gas stations and at, you know, and, and at rodeos. I mean, we met people all across the country and what you find are people who are much more purple than they are red or blue. And it's just useful for the two parties to make everybody red or blue so they can spend their corrupt advertising dollars on campaigns kind of shrewdly by being able to pigeonhole people on cultural issues and then sort of have your way with them. But I would argue that what most Americans have largely figured out is that the two-party system has abandoned them generally. If you watch what's going on in Congress, the media in this country is not our problem. In fact, it's doing a rather good job these days of asking the tough questions. It wasn't for decades. What's now happening is that we have a Congress that is completely uninterested in the actual destiny of the American people, we have a crazy person in the White House who's clearly a predatory person, clearly a rapacious person, not just in the things he says about women and other races, but just as a person, he seems to almost take pleasure in hurting these children that are being stripped from their mothers and then acting like he has nothing to do with it. So you have a crazy person who's a dangerous person in the White House, and now you have the Congress on both sides kind of sitting on their hands in some warped emperor's new clothes model, teaching us how countries go wrong. When we ever ask ourselves, how did Germany go wrong? I ask as a person who lost family in the Holocaust, or we ask about other countries that turned bizarrely under despotic leadership. Well, where was the parliament in those countries? Where were their Congress? Where was the diet? They go quiet. They go eerily quiet because they're all getting a piece of the action of the direction that the weird leader is going in. So we're seeing that now. You don't see that in everyday people across the country. You meet beautiful, hardworking, decent people. The election of Donald Trump happens midway through this film. It took place mostly during the 2016 election, I think, and maybe just thereafter. How did the election of Donald Trump change the story you're telling, or did it change the story you're telling? To be fair, and it's nitpicking, he doesn't really get elected till really very much at the end of the movie. And I only point that out because I was scared to have it happen earlier, Mm -hmm. because Trump is toxic. He poisons everything he touches. Just ask Melania. (laughs) So we're now in a situation when we're making the film where we started out making a film. There was no Donald Trump running for president when we started making the film. We were just making a film about Elvis, America, and how the country had become so kind Mm -hmm. of vulgar and Vegasized. Where had our grace gone? Where had the country's mercy and its love of each other? Where had all that gone in this already before Trump, very Mm -hmm. broken situation? Then comes Trump. And I remember when he got elected on election night, I got phone call after phone call from friends on both sides of the aisle lamenting what the country had come to that such a person, such a person who's never devoted a second of his life to public service should now be in the Oval Office, a gilded balloon of a man, this bloated, tragic, dishonest man should suddenly be leading the country that holds the Mm -hmm. standards for democracy in the world. So people were lamenting that. But there wasn't a single call 
where the people I was speaking to didn't also say to me, but congratulations on your movie, because God, this is going to make your movie <laughs> so much more relevant and better and all that. As if mm-hmm. my movie about, about America and the breaking of the American dream and Elvis was suddenly proven correct by the election of Donald yeah. Trump. Now, that has some truth in it. But it is in no way at all the kind of movie I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. I wasn't here to make a movie about the autopsy of the American dream of how it died. Right. But now it starts I off staring... as a cautionary tale, really. Sure. And then I think someone in the film says, as soon as Donald Trump gets elected, he says, OK, Elvis is about to die on the toilet right yeah. now. That's where yeah. we're at. That's a combination of Van Jones well, and Ethan Hawke. Yeah. And that was honestly how I felt. This movie premiered at Cannes a year ago under a different title called Promised Land. And at that time, I felt very bewildered, as Amer- a lot of Americans did, about the election and very bewildered about where the country would now be headed. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, if the metaphor in my film holds true, then with the election of Donald Trump, what could I think other than I think America has just died on the toilet? Mm-hmm. And since then, it looks like we're getting back up. And where is it going to go from here? Look at the number of unbelievable social developments that have happened in the last year. Start with those wonderful kids from Parkland. Start yeah. with Emma Gonzalez. Then talk about Black Lives Matter. Then talk about Me Too. Then talk about Time's Up. Then talk about the teacher walkouts in several red states where suddenly teachers went on strike for uh, having better teacher conditions. You never saw strikes in this country in the past 40 years. Now you're mm-hmm. seeing them. Look at the mayoral uprisings against the nefarious activities of the federal government. Look at the way people are now resisting this juvenile concentration camp policy that Trump has instituted. Juvenile concentration camps. Mm. It took that for people to say, okay, enough is enough. Laura Bush pens an editorial this weekend, enough is enough. People yeah. even within the, uh, the president's own party saying, okay, you're making it hard to be us now. Mm-hmm. So that's an amazing development, but I hadn't known that a year ago. So a year ago, the reason I kept editing the film was I was saying, where is the silver lining here? Yeah. I'm always looking for the silver lining because I am a person who does believe in optimism. And I do believe that the American people, like all people, have collectively beautiful capacities Mm -hmm. and that every now and then we get hijacked by very greedy, very concentrated power brokers. And we just have to go past those people as revolutions have done throughout time. Yeah. To reference your metaphor here, I mean, even the fat, sweaty Elvis of the Vegas era was still recording prolifically by any other musician's standard and putting out hits to the very end. So, and he's you know, beautiful. Even the Elvis in his decline was still pretty damn good. <laughs> and he's beautiful, even yeah. in his lost, bloated yeah. state. I don't know about you, but I'm not the kind of person that needs everybody to look like they're 20 years old in a yeah. heartthrob. Yeah. You know, I find beauty in all shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. From the time I was a kid, you know, I loved seeing the crow's feet that old people get around mm-hmm. their eyes. I think I'm getting them now. You know, I loved. I, I better love it. Um, I've loved my whole life the the way that beauty expresses itself in in a in a in a not typical fashion magazine sure. way. And Elvis, the older Elvis, I'm not sure which one I find more beautiful. The mm-hmm. old struggling Elvis. He wasn't that old, by the way. He was 42. Yeah, he that just, I didn't even yeah, realize. Yeah. So the 42-year-old Elvis before he dies, that Elvis sweating, bloated on drugs. It's not that I want those things for him but I at all, but I understand the humanity of them. Mm-hmm. And I don't need him to look like a veneered heartthrob who's never seen a harsh moment in his life. 
I think it's fascinating to watch him. What I had wished would have happened was that he had friends around him who could have gotten through the thick, thick armature of capitalism that was encasing him and said to him, listen, man, you've got to do something here. We've got to get, we've got to reach you and get you out of this. But it doesn't make me think he's not beautiful in those golden last performances. I mean, he sings Unchained Melody. It's one of the most beautiful performances in in music history. Well, it's similar to Frank Sinatra in that he didn't really become Frank Sinatra until he hit 40 or 50, even though he had been a pop star when he was 20-something years old. And there is a lot of soulfulness to the later songs in Elvis's career. Yes. Now, you mentioned that you talked to a number of his personal friends in high High school, former girlfriend, uh, people who worked in studio with him, like Jerry Schilling, uh, his housekeeper who actually discovered him passed out on the toilet. Talk a little about the Elvis that they knew. Well, I had wonderful conversations with Jerry Schilling in the making of the film. He is a real treasure of a person and and his loyalty to Elvis is so inspiring Mm. Um, and his understanding of him. Jerry met Elvis when he was uh, quite a bit younger than Elvis and and very much looked up to him. But I think as time has gone on, you know, Jerry is now, Jerry looks like he's 50, but he's, you know, he's yeah. one of the youngest, most like together looking people you've ever seen. <laughs> but Jerry's had a real life and he's lived, he's been the manager of the Beach Boys. He's done a lot with his life um, and looks back on his time with Elvis like an older person who understands life a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's not just starry eyed about it. He understands the magic of this person, that this person was one of history's most significant people. Um, but also that, you know, inside a bubble of such an amount of success, who among us could possibly be prepared mm-hmm. for what faced Elvis Presley? Um, you know, uh, every friend we talked to about Elvis and every person who loved him, they all knew that there was a hurricane that hit and who's prepared for a hurricane, mm-hmm. who really battens down all the hatches and knows which ones won't come flying open, and who among us could have said no to any of the seductions that faced Elvis. You know, Linda Thompson talks about in the film how, you know, being Elvis's girlfriend, I mean, she was aware that this was Elvis Presley, that this person had people making themselves available to him romantically every five seconds. She says at one point in the interview to me, every time he took a breath, there was some there, someone there saying, I want to be with you. Yeah. And how does anyone withstand the warping impact that that kind of power can have on your soul? Mm-hmm. And I think by that measure, Elvis did pretty damn well. This is a person who seemed incredibly decent to the end, kind. You don't hear a harsh word from him. What you see is is a very beautiful person trapped in a situation way beyond their control, like the American people, who Mm -hmm. I believe are beautiful. And we have found ourselves in a position of power, success, and then excess, way beyond our prediction or control. And I don't think we were ready to batten down the hatches in the right way. And so the hurricane is upon us. Mm -hmm. And you've never seen it more vividly than in the age of Trump, but it was there before. Yeah, it's interesting to contrast how Elvis versus Trump handled having all this money and Donald all this Trump, power I mean, and this, so many yes men. Listen, I, mean, I don't want to waste a minute without saying this. Donald right, Trump right. is the opposite of Elvis Presley. Yeah. He is a representative of everything in the world that destroyed Elvis Presley. So before anyone thinks that because I'm having to make an Elvis Presley movie in the age of Donald Trump, I think there's a connection between them. Mm-hmm. I think Donald Trump is a monstrous human being, and I think Elvis Presley is a beautiful human being. Right. And Elvis lost his way by no fault. Well, here's an interesting well, thing. He that, was 
seduced, whereas Donald Trump seduced. sought it out from right. day one. And the American people risk these seductions. Jerry Schilling said something incredibly smart to me one day. We were talking about the movie and, and what I was hoping to do. And I, I told him about how I saw Colonel Parker as a kind of a symbol toward Elvis of the same way that capitalism treats the American people and our mm-hmm. hopes for democracy, that the colonel was banging the drum of money, 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 power, power, power so hard that he ends up burying Elvis in all this power and money mm-hmm. and gone is Elvis's authenticity, his chances to have real self-expression, dignified self-expression. Same with capitalism. And Jerry said to me, I totally understand what you're saying about how big business is hurting America. I get that. But what you're saying about Elvis, you have to be a bit more careful. And I said, why? He said, because Elvis loved the colonel like a father. He even wrote it to him in a letter. He said, and he loved what the colonel did for him and was doing for him. Elvis wanted all that success, wanted all that power. He loved being Elvis Presley and he knew how huge that was. And he said, and I'm not telling you that to make Elvis less of a good guy, but he's not entirely a victim. He was a big boy Mm -hmm. and he made choices and we all make choices. And this is what I mean by Jerry bringing the benefit of his life experience to this. What he was telling me is also about the American people that yes, we may be somewhat victims as Elvis was somewhat a victim of circumstances beyond his control, but we also all have choices we have mm-hmm. to make. And when we're faced with those seductions, the choices we make are instrumental. I'm so grateful to Jerry for pointing that out because yeah. it lets me understand Elvis with even more compassion than I already had. And it makes me translate that compassion to the American people to say, listen, we're suffering here. A lot is happening to us, but tomorrow is ours. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with documentary filmmaker Eugene Jarecki in just a moment. Whether your tires are new or worn, you should have the confidence to get where you need to be. That's why Michelin designed the Michelin Premier Tires with worn performance in mind. Michelin Premier Tires are built to maintain wet braking performance throughout the life of the tire. Get there no matter the weather thanks to the Michelin Premier Tires Evergrip technology, which helps maintain wet braking performance even as your tires wear. And now you can compare the Michelin Premier all-season tires worn tire braking versus leading competitors at michelinman.com slash long-lasting performance. That's michelinman.com slash long-lasting performance. Want to know an easy way to save money? Lower the interest rate on your credit card debt with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Lightstream rewards consumers who have good credit with a great interest rate and no fees. Get a credit card consolidation loan from 5.89% APR with AutoPay. Choose your funding date as soon as today. I always like to get to know sponsors of the show, and I spent some time looking around Lightstream's website just today. It's intuitive, hassle-free, and Lightstream genuinely seems to care about helping people who are struggling with credit card debt get that monkey off their back. Plus, my listeners get an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash kick. That's lightstream, L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash kick. Subject to credit approval, rates include 0.50 auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information. And now, back to the show. 
to some extent, even the colonel has become something of a caricature of himself. Yeah. There's probably a certain degree of exaggeration, even in the way that he's portrayed, sure. although certainly he took advantage of Elvis. And- sure. We had to be careful with that because so yeah. many people we've talked to put it all at the colonel's feet. And if I hadn't right. spoken to Jerry about this, I probably would have let that happen because mm-hmm. he's such an easy go-to villain. I mean, Peter Goralnik... Yeah. Elvis's biographer, at one point in the film, he says, the colonel, he says, uh, this guy wasn't even an American citizen. He was, uh, yeah. you know, he wasn't even his real name. He wasn't a colonel. You start to get this almost like foreigner. He's a foreigner, like uh-huh. a foreigner witch okay, hunt. Right. And that's not right either. Yeah. Like, we're all yeah. foreigners. This mm-hmm. is a country of immigrants. So that's not the point. The point is not whether Colonel Parker was an immigrant. The point is not whether they used an assumed name. Uh, it, a lot of people use assumed names in this right. society. That's not the problem. The problem is that the colonel came to represent a, a, a stop-at-nothing, winner-take-all form of managing an artist. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that same thing now happen to Michael Jackson. We've seen it happen to other artists who get run ragged by the system. And what's what at first compromises their authenticity and ultimately it can compromise their health, their mental health, and their life. Mm-hmm. I have to ask about the Rolls Royce. How did you come to acquire Elvis's 1963 Rolls Royce? What was it, a Phantom? Or? It's, a, it's a Phantom 5. Phantom 5. Um, we were in the middle of making the film, and there was no car in the film. Oh, We huh. were making a film about this metaphoric connection between Elvis and America. Okay. When we learned that the car was coming up for auction, and that the uh, and that in point of fact, we we tried to figure out could the film bid in the auction? Could mm-hmm. the film actually try to buy the car and then sell it sell it again, like indie films do, where you you take all the money out on a credit card and then you have to pay it back at the end? <laughs> okay. So we had a uh, a huge decision to make about whether part of our budget could be spent yeah. to buy this car and then resell the car, essentially, uh, and and borrow the money to do that. We did that, and I'm I'm I. If you'd asked me two months ago, I would have told you I'm still terrified about this gamble, um, but I can <laughs> happily announce that um, we have indeed uh, found a buyer for the car. Okay. Um, and the final resting place of the car after this film is an extremely poetic outcome. It won't be announced until the end of the month, okay. but it's an extremely poetic outcome. Um, couldn't be a more fitting outcome for how this car should um, have carried along its life. Yeah, and the Rolls-Royce serves as something of a recording studio on wheels for you. How, how did you have to retrofit the car for your purposes as a director? Well, I'd love to say we did that really brilliantly. We retrofitted the car a lot for the filming. The okay. car, by the end, time we were done, it looked like one of those Google vehicles that's filming the whole <laughs> yeah. country. We had cameras yeah. coming out of every window, every door, hanging on every spare piece of surface area because we filmed at times with six or seven cameras at one time in the car when musicians are playing we want to capture music video level images of them performing mm-hmm. in Elvis's car those those music videos are about to all be released by the way so there's right. a whole bunch of music videos from M Ward and John Hyatt and Nikki Bloom and yeah. the Gramblers and Emmy Sunshine and how about a, whole a soundtrack range of is there going to be a soundtrack we're working on that at the moment Beautiful. and those music videos are kind of the first warning shot mm-hmm. of that immortal technique the rapper yeah. has an unbelievable video that'll be coming out this week actually yeah. so all of that um all of that that was great from the question of how to film it mm. recording it we did a vast number of microphones and a lot of carefulness but i have to tell you that the very nature of the velvet interior of that car and the heavy 
metal and the, mm-hmm. the baffling and made the car a beautiful recording space because okay. it's also a little yeah. bit of an old car. So there's a little right. bit of wind whistling through there too. Yeah. <laughs> when you hear these recordings, you really feel that mm-hmm. you are there and that's what we most wanted. And a lot of the recordings that are in the film, they're not taken where we're like parked in some quiet shady Glen. They're taken on highway on road, 80 yeah. and somebody is playing in the back seat and we're trying to keep the car from falling <laughs> apart while they're finishing their tune. I mean, I don't know if there's a law against driving and directing, but it seems to me that that'd be a recipe for an accident. If there is, I'm, <laughs> I'm guilty as charged. Okay. The number of, not only did, I don't know if you're allowed to say this on the air, but not Go only did it. I break whatever laws involved driving the car <laughs> in that fashion, but yeah. you know, I'm driving, there's a traffic light and I've got musicians performing in the back seat and I'm coming toward the light. I'm going to burn that yellow because yeah. okay. if I don't burn that yellow, I'm going to stop. Yeah. The people are going to start to honk. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a bad situation at the intersection where I yeah. take the take again. So sometimes the people in the back seat, I can see while they're playing, they're thinking, <laughs> what is this lunatic doing? Where are we dro- Where are we going with this? Well, yeah. And a cross country road trip is a lot of miles to be putting on a 1963 rolls. Yes. How many times did it break down? About, uh, about 20 times. <laughs> Just don't tell the people who are buying yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't going out anywhere, this interview, is it? No. Nobody no, 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 no. This is, yeah. Okay. Well, between <laughs> you and family me, and friends. A, the thing's a total junk heap. <laughs> I wouldn't go near it with a 10-foot puff. Your journey follows Elvis's footsteps chronologically, starting with Tupelo, Mississippi. I, di- I didn't even realize that. I, I thought he was born in Memphis. Um, yeah. It's a small town whose whole livelihood seems to revolve around Elvis tourism. From the people that you talk to, they'd all be out of a job. They couldn't find anywhere to work if it weren't for Elvis tourism. Yeah, to a person, that's what they told us. There Mm -hmm. wasn't a person we met in Tupelo, Mississippi, who didn't in one way or another allude to the small cottage industry of Elvis having been from there as the only thing still standing Mm -hmm. in Tupelo. Why? Because it's a ravaged small town like all the other small towns in America that have had the country turn their back on them while we prayed to the gods of Amazon, Google, ExxonMobil, and the rest of the corporate world that have so damaged American democracy and so damaged the American dream. Tupelo is just one of those yeah. spots along the road. And he moves from there to Memphis. It was where you had all these different kinds of music from early jazz, blues, bluegrass, country, all kind of coming together in a melting pot yep. that eventually came out as rock and roll, I guess. Yeah, that's Chuck D in the film of Public Enemy, who mm-hmm. talks about Memphis as that kind of, um, you know, con- con- sort of um, hub for so much about America at that time. What a what a national treasure Chuck D is. Mm. And uh, the contribution he makes in the film is part to understand the history of the situation in which we find ourselves. And then in part, of course, it's to give some greater specific shape to the way he has talked about Elvis. Very famously, he was the person who penned the lines in the song Fight the Power about Elvis being a hero to most, but having never meant shit to him because mm-hmm. straight up... He was uh, racist and motherfuck him and John Wayne. So okay. I've, what, I've cut he? that line down so people know the gist of it. Um, but people yeah. should go listen to Public Enemies Fight the Power. Yeah. But okay, in your opinion, was Elvis racist? Because I, mean, I, I see a lot of people accusing him of cultural appropriation, which we can certainly talk about. But was he outright racist? Well, Chuck D is, I think, the best voice in the film and the best voice I've heard on this subject. Mm-hmm. Um, himself, having lived long enough to understand how complex life is. Mm -hmm. There's no question that I don't think Chuck D 
takes back anything he ever said about Elvis in Fight the Power, nor should he. It's beautifully put and, and very powerful and does represent the view of black America very in a very widespread way mm-hmm. of the cultural appropriation by Elvis Presley and the music business in Elvis's music. At the same time, I don't think you'll find a more magnanimous interview in your life than the way Chuck D talks about Elvis Presley in my movie, because mm-hmm. what he says is, I didn't call Elvis a racist because he took black music. He says, I don't think it works that way. He says, I think culture is culture. Culture is supposed to be shared. He gives the example of a young African-American kid playing Mozart and says, you would never tell that kid you Mm -hmm. shouldn't be playing that music because it's not yours. And likewise, somebody shouldn't take Elvis Presley, who had a genuine love of black music, and fault him for that. That's actually Mm -hmm. a beautiful thing. That's what this country is supposed to be about. The young Elvis who loved that music, they know, as Jerry Schilling once pointed out to me, that for a white kid like Elvis to be singing black music at the time that he was doing it was an unbelievably courageous thing to do. You could have gotten the, you could have gotten the shit kicked out of you for doing that. So kudos to Elvis for being Mm -hmm. that kind of a cultural crossover person. Who's just an open person. Wonderful. It's many years later that what Chuck D and others would complain about is where was Elvis when those people in Memphis and places like Tupelo needed him to be a national Mm -hmm. voice that was willing to say in the civil rights movement, this is not just, this is not right. I'm going to side with my fellows over here whose music radiates through me. And they feel that Elvis, who was already moving toward the white sequined Elvis of Hollywood and Vegas, whatever, they feel like Elvis didn't really lift a finger in those days to do what one would have hoped he would do, given the sensitivities one ascribes to him at that time. Well, yeah, and especially when you contrast Elvis, who was the biggest celebrity in the country, with other stars like Marlon Brando, who was speaking out on civil rights and marching with Dr. King, or later Muhammad Ali took the risk and spoke out against Vietnam and risked his career to do that. It would be it would be Elvis unf- played it safe. Yeah, it would be unfair to people like Muhammad Ali, who traded the height of his career as a boxer to express his protest about injustice. Mm -hmm. It would be unfair to him to not notice the difference when any other celebrity of significant power does not do the same. And it doesn't mean that you're supposed to say Elvis Presley is then a bad guy for not having done it. Chuck D., for example, pointed out to me that by then Elvis was already taking drugs. He was already Mm -hmm. a kind of a lost soul. And in a moment of amazing magnanimity, Chuck looked at me and said, listen, those drugs can make anybody an asshole. He said, so (laughs) while I'm critical of Elvis for this chapter that we're talking about, I don't know what he was going through. And I don't want someone to judge me for what they don't know I'm going through. So, again, this isn't a personal thing about Elvis. It's how do we calibrate our understanding of the American dream largely for big white men? Mm -hmm. And if we're going to change that now, Elvis is a wonderful messenger about how tragic it can be when a beautiful soul like him gets to a degree influenced by the system and becomes less than what we wanted him to be. And that only happens because the system seduces, the system pays a top dollar, the system encourages us to turn our back on our fellow man. And I think we're starting to learn that that doesn't work. This is not a totalitarian country. You don't express patriotism by going along to get along. What happened to the days when Americans took pride in being the people who stood up to injustice, who stood up to Hitler, who stood up to McCarthy, who stood up to oppression? That's the whole point of being here. So if that stopped being, somebody's got to send me a memo and get me a ticket somewhere else. But for now, this is what we're doing. And I think that quietude is not just about Elvis Presley. It's about all of us. It's about are we there when our fellows need us as we idealize they would be 
when we sing songs like Hound Dog. Mm-hmm. And, and you talk about Elvis's own military service in the film. Yes. The Korean War happens right at the height of Elvis's popularity, and the colonel convinces him to enlist. Compared to the people who were fighting in Korea, he gets assigned to a base in Germany. And one of your subjects in the film says Elvis left for Germany as James Dean and returned as John Wayne. What happened in Germany? That's Jerry Schilling again. Okay. Such a fount of wisdom, Jerry is. Um, what happened in Germany with Elvis, um, I think, is what happens to so many young men and women who uh, really take personally the the call to duty of mm-hmm. the country and the passions of um, America's fight for freedom and to protect dignity around the world. And they get into a machine that, whether they realize it or not, has ulterior motives that they're not mm-hmm. really privy to. And Elvis became, in many ways, the kind of poster child for America in the military, right at the time when America was deciding to become a global empire, to leave behind the Republican modesty about militarism that had been our calling card when we broke off from Britain. One of the reasons we broke off from Britain was that they wanted to keep a standing army among us, and Americans did not want to be oppressed by an empire with a standing army. And here we are in the 1950s time frame, having just dropped the only atom bombs in history— And we are going up against the Soviet Union to be the empire that runs the world militarily. And whether he realizes it or not, Elvis becomes part of that bargain and cutting off his sideburns and coming back a clean-cut American boy who's lost his mama and loved his mama and serving his country. He never really gets back to the raw, live-wire badass that he had been right up until that point. Elvis shook this country upside down, racially, sexually, socially musically and now he goes away and in many ways John Lennon said it it was as if they didn't just give him a haircut they might have as John Lennon put it cut off his bollocks (laughs) so to a degree I think Elvis came back that way I think to overstate Mm -hmm. that would be wrong there's still amazing years left for Elvis where he does some extraordinary things but there is a weakness Mm -hmm. that emerged in him don't forget also he discovers drugs in the US military as so many Americans do how did that happen well the military is like a pharmacy for people overseas we all know that they Mm -hmm. take uppers and downers to keep and get through uh, drills and to get through difficult experiences so you think he was prescribed or given that when he was serving in Germany? We know that he was. And so that stays with him till the end. You can say that that kills him in the end. You can say Elvis going to Germany killed him. And it'd be hard to argue with that. It's a slippery slope. Other beautiful things happened. He meets Priscilla in Germany. And as Jerry points out, that was the best thing that happened. So it seems to me that uh, the most important thing to recognize here is that Elvis's role in his military service was to act as a kind of poster child as America was selling a new idea of herself. And that is an idea that today has spun completely out of control. People who were worried about this country becoming a global empire in the 1950s and saw Elvis as like the hood ornament of that, they have every reason to say, told you so. This is exactly what we feared. Look at us now with bases in you know, with 850 military bases around the world in over 150 countries, with 7 million people or so under the control of the executive branch and our armed services. I mean, it's an astonishing problem we have, not just nuclear, but our entire arsenal being so vastly spread around the world. And he definitely didn't mean to do that. But Elvis Presley made that palatable mm-hmm. for Americans who could say, I want to be a good mama's boy who 
serves my country and answers the call and Elvis did it and look what he sacrificed to do it. And that's all true, Mm -hmm. but it's just a misuse of Elvis. Yeah. And to use your metaphor here, I think that what you say in the film is that America is basically at the point of being the Vegas era Elvis. And it's interesting because Elvis never played Las Vegas until after the Rat Pack era, after the era when the mob ran all the hotels and casinos. He only comes to Vegas after Howard Hughes took Vegas from the mob and corporations came into the town. There's no better example of that, I think, than the hotel where he chose to perform, which was the newly erected Las Vegas Hilton. I mean, it doesn't get more corporate than that. That's exactly right. And you can make a parallel here. Elvis was used by the U.S. military as a hood ornament on their warship, Mm -hmm. and he was hung straight out front and center. Elvis is in the building by the International Hotel, the Hilton that gets built in Las Vegas, and he is the battering ram for the corporatization of Las Vegas, just as he was the battering ram for the U.S. military Mm -hmm. in those days. Elvis is misused. He's misused at many points in his life, and he's vulnerable to that misuse because we all want to be king. Mm-hmm. on some level. And that's tragic. And if we could rethink that, we would all say, I don't want to be king. I just want to be the young Elvis Presley forever. I just want to be true and beautiful and authentic. And I want to be good to my friends. And I want to be true to the people who I stood on the shoulders of giants to get here. Of course, he wanted all those things. We would all want those things. But we are seducible until further notice And that means we've got to do some inward looking to make ourselves less seducible. I noticed that you don't shoot any part of this film at Graceland. Uh, Did you ever have any conversations with the estate? Did they have issues with Elvis as a metaphor for America in decline? Elvis's likeness in the world is not really controlled by an estate anymore. Oh, it's not? It's really? controlled by a company called Authentic Brands Group, which no is kidding. in the branding business. Huh. They they own other famous luminaries as well. Okay. Um, early on, we had some contact from representatives of that organization that didn't sound like they were terribly thrilled about <laughs> anyone making anything that had to do with Elvis that they yeah. don't control. But of course, I'm a journalist. I'm not a commercial maker. So we had to kind of stay far from that for the honesty of what we were doing. Um, they support other projects. They recently had some role in being in being helpful to the, the recent HBO film about Elvis. And that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that there isn't something good about that. I mean, to be honest with you, Jerry Schilling and other people I really care about are deeply involved in that project. And I think it has a great deal to offer people about Elvis. Um, but I have to be able to be free, since I'm really making a movie about America, um, to, to incorporate Elvis in that story yeah. in the most dignified and in the most honest way. But I can't really be interacting with a branding company. And Grace. <laughs> in many ways felt like the 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 it's sort of the epicenter of the modern branding of Elvis mm-hmm. and for people who just want a, a kind of a photo op and a taste of Elvis or to feel what it was like to be in his world um, those are all beautiful things um, for me to exploit that personal world for what I was doing, that's too tabloid for me. It's mm-hmm. also why we didn't even try to interview Priscilla Presley. This is not a movie about the underside of Elvis's life. I don't like those kind of things. And I don't really want to get into the private matters of public people that we can all never know anything about. What I'm talking about is the public Elvis and the public America Mm -hmm. and how they speak to each other and how desperately important it is that we understand ourselves through the lens of Elvis. And I don't think that lens would have been made clearer by Graceland. I think it would have been made foggier. Yeah. Before we go, do you have a favorite Elvis song? It changes every now and then, but of late... 
I think the culminating song in the film, Unchained Melody, mm-hmm. um, is the one that's on my mind the most. I watched him perform it several times lately because I have been seeing the film on the road as we brought it out to audiences. And I watch people, they really get choked up watching him sing it. He had studied uh, his voice operatically. He had developed his voice remarkably. Um, the passion that he has in the song is overwhelming. And Billy Crystal saw the movie, and he wrote me a, such a beautiful note about it. And the main thing he said in his note was that when we got to the end of the song and Elvis is singing his last extraordinary notes in the song, and this is shortly before he's going to die, and he's bloated and he looks unhealthy and he's sweating and he's trembling. The passion coursing through him is so overwhelming. And Billy Crystal said that there's this last moment when Elvis looks up at the camera and he has this look of joyful, boyish pride on his face. Like he's saying, look, Ma, I I still got this. (laughs) And Elvis, not only do you still have it at that moment, you never had it more than at that moment. It's a crowning moment in his life. And I look in his eyes, and Billy Crystal said this, it's like there you see the whole hopes of the American people, the resilience of the American people, no matter how lost, no matter how beaten, no matter how confused. They're human beings, and they have an undying flame for dignity in themselves. And that's in that song. And I, I really encourage people to see it. I hope people come and see the movie when it opens here in LA and across the country. It opens on the 29th of June here in LA um, at the New Art. And I'd love to have people come and see the movie. But that moment in particular is where I think they'll understand my feelings for it all most clearly. Beautifully said. Well, again, The King opens here in LA on the 29th and in New York on Friday, June 22nd. Eugene Durecki, thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Eugene Jarecki for coming on the podcast. The King opens in theaters in New York Friday, June 22nd, and in L.A. Friday, June 29th. For more information and showtimes, visit their website at theking.film. Whether your tires are new or worn, you should have the confidence to get where you need to be. That's why Michelin designed the Michelin Premier Tires with worn performance in mind. Michelin Premier Tires are built to maintain wet braking performance throughout the life of the tire. Get there no matter the weather, thanks to the Michelin Premier Tires Evergrip technology, which helps maintain wet braking performance even as your tires wear. And now you can compare the Michelin Premier all-season tires worn tire braking versus leading competitors at michelinman.com slash long-lasting performance. That's michelinman.com slash long-lasting performance. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.